If you would like to get your Bibles and turn to Mark, we're going to start and we're going to read from chapter 14, verse 1. Hopefully, if you haven't got your Bible, and with the help of some multitasking, I'm going to have the verses on the screen as well as trying to read them from my Bible. So we'll go. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, when I press the button, yes, Verse 12, on the first day of the festival on leavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when they had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So there's a lot going on in this passage. Um, We see it's actually, it's Passover time. And the disciples are wanting to celebrate with Jesus. And we see what happens is that Jesus makes predictions. He predicts about the bloke with the jar on his head or carrying the jar. And that that would lead to the room where they're celebrating Passover. Jesus predicts his betrayal. And we also see Jesus bringing in the Lord's Supper. And so rather predictably for me, we're going to be focusing on the food. Today, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Um, the, the scripture in the Bible, it talks quite a lot about food and we see God uses food quite often to illustrate, to highlight, to remind his people of what he has done and what he's doing. And so I think to get the full context of the Lord's Supper, we are going to look at four different meals today, um, including the Lord's Supper. Just to kind of to help us to fully understand what the what the disciples heard, what they realised when Jesus did what he did in this passage. Um, when when I was first married, me and Linz, I would I would serve up dinner, and <laughs> yeah, you'll have to learn from this mistake. This is where this is going. Um, so what happened in that first year of marriage is I gained a lot of weight. Uh, I'm, I'm talking chins. Uh, because 
what I would do is I would, I would get my plate and I would put a grand size portion of food on that plate. I would then get Lindsay's plate and I would put a grand size portion of food on Lindsay's plate. Now, if you've ever met Lindsay, you'll know Lindsay is smaller than I am and doesn't eat anywhere near as much as I do. And so what would happen is at the end of the meal, there would be half a plate of food left. And being northern and not liking waste, I would finish it. Um, and so very quickly, I was eating one and a half times the amount of food I normally ate. But me getting chubby for finishing my wife's meal is not the worst thing that has ever happened by a guy finishing his wife's meal. So the first meal we will look at is in Genesis 3, <laughs> verse 17. <laughs> I'm glad we appreciate that. Um, so this is, this is the meal of the serpent. And I will read Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So I'm calling this one the meal of the serpent, quite obviously. Why? This is the point in history where sin enters the world. This is where we have to start. Whoa. This is where we have to start. Um, when looking at meals in the Bible, this is a significant one. And understanding the Lord's Supper, actually we need to understand this first meal. We need to understand what happened and what occurred. And so... This is where it all got wrong. This is the low point. This is where the relationship with God and man is broken and sin enters. Because by rebelling against God, by going against his command, when God said, don't eat the fruit and doing exactly what he said not to, we sinned against him. We did, humanity deliberately rebelled against him. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And we see... Actually, that sin is a reality, and this is where it comes in. This is the point where humanity is enslaved. That's what we see here. We also see that the punishment for sin, the wages of sin, are death. God clearly outlines it. He says, do not eat of this tree or you will die. And what did we do? We, Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree. And the outcome is death. That is the starting place. For all of what we're going to be looking at today. This is what we need to understand. Humanity is enslaved by what we've done. And, and there is a repercussion. There is an outcome. There is a wage. When we sin, it might feel good for a time. But actually all it leads to, the only payment you get, is death. Inevitably, in the end. What we also see is, is the relationship with God is broken. If you read further on 
in this chapter, what we see is that Adam and Eve, they hide from God. The relationship isn't the same. They're ashamed. They don't want to see him. And this is where we start. This is the state we are all in. That we are sinners enslaved and we have a relationship with God that is broken. It is not what it should be. However, what we also see with our great God is he has a plan. In the midst of this, in the midst of the fall of the low point of the story, we have a God who knows what he's doing, who knows what he is about. And actually God God curses the serpent and he curses Adam and Eve because of what they've done, because of their sin. But in the midst of that curse, in verse 15 of chapter 3, we see this. We see God saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is looking forward to Jesus. This is what God's plan has. This is what God is planning to do. He already knows that his son will come. He already knows that Jesus will defeat the devil. And what we see here is is the truth of that. That someone will come of man between your offspring. That's when he's speaking to the woman. that, That Jesus will come born of a woman. And he will he will be hurt by the devil. He will. His heel will be struck. He will be killed. But that's not the end of it. He will crush his head. We see a plan here for deliverance. We see a plan here for salvation. Already right at the beginning, at the low point. And so that is where we need to start today when looking at the Lord's Supper. All that time later, actually, it's all part of the same plan. God knows what he is doing. And so... That is where we stand. This is the low point. Humanity sinned. Humanity is enslaved. But God has a plan. And so we'll move on to the next meal. This is the meal of the sacrifice. So we'll move now to to ancient Egypt, where God's people have been, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 400 odd years. They are in the process of being liberated. They are in the process of being set free. God has sent Aaron and Moses and to speak to the Pharaoh. And there are a total of ten plagues. And this is the final plague. So we're going to read from Exodus 12. And, and what I've done is I've kind of... I've, I've mashed a few verses together, basically, to make this a little bit quicker. So we're going to be looking at Exodus 12, verses 3, 6, 7, and 8. And 11, 12, and 13. Um, And I will try and remember while I read this. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood... And put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and staff 
in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this is God bringing about his plan. What we're seeing is God establishing a sacrifice and actually establishing the Passover, which our verse, our verses in Mark show that the disciples are still celebrating all those years on. And this Passover is actually key to the final play that God is doing. We see the judgment of God coming upon the people. And it is also, it's a way God uses of making his people remember. Because this Passover, this first one, wasn't the only Passover. It was a yearly meal, a little bit like Christmas is for us and how we remember Jesus coming. Well, their Passover was remembering God setting this people free. And so there's three main elements to the Passover that God brings in here. Firstly, there's the unleavened bread. Now, all of these things are symbolic. They're God, the people ate them, but it actually they have depths of meaning. So we're going to have a look at some of the meaning of, of these parts, these elements. So the first one, the unleavened bread. This symbolizes the, the speed or the haste at which God was going to save his people. He did it quickly. So in the passages we read, in the verses we read, we saw that the people had to eat it with their cloak tucked into their belt and their staff in their hand. They had to be ready to move because God was going to deliver them quickly. And why does bread symbolize that? Um, unleavened bread is bread without yeast. And if you've ever made bread, or if, like me, you've just watched Bake Off, uh, you, you kind of know that proving a bread or making the yeast make the bread all fluffy is it takes time. That's where the pressure comes in. That's where people get really stressed on Bake Off. How long should I prove it for? If you're running away from an enemy, that shouldn't be your concern. Okay, getting a fluffy textured bread, not really number one priority. What, what you're doing here is you're getting sustenance. You're eating bread without yeast because you need to flee. You need to run. It's, it's considered the bread of affliction because if you're a people who are who are with an enemy, if you're a people who have to flee, this is the bread you eat because you get sustenance and you sacrifice the kind of pleasant texture. Next element is the bitter herbs. And so the bitter herbs represent the bitterness of slavery. So God's people at this time, the Israelites, were enslaved to the Egyptians. They were physically slaves. And to be honest, the people eating the Passover in Exodus probably didn't need a reminding of what slavery was like. This is God preparing for future generations when God will bring the people into the promised land and they would no longer be slaves. Actually, God's just about to free them from slavery here. And when you're not a slave, it can be hard to understand what slavery is like. And so this is God's provision. He is reminding the Israelites in future generations what it was like to be slaves, the bitterness of it. Because it can be hard to remember when you're a free people. 
And then the final part is the lamb. And the key part is the lamb. The lamb represents the cost that had to be paid. The cost that had to be paid to bring salvation. Because you see, in this plague, in this episode, God, God going to kill the firstborn. Something is going to die. God is bringing judgment. And we see in the meal of the serpent that actually when God judges sin, the outcome is death. That is just. That is what God has said. And so when God comes in judgment, actually he judges sin and the outcome of that is death. And what we see in the lamb is God's deliverance. Something had to die. It was either the firstborn or it was a lamb. And the lamb is dying in their place. This is symbolic. This is pointing towards Jesus. But it's showing the grace of God. That God's judgment passed over the people because of the death of the Lamb. Because in this, when we read it, we see that actually, if the Israelites hadn't put the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts, they would have still been under the judgment. God would not have passed over them. The difference was the blood of the Lamb. That is the key here. It's not anything that they were. It's only God's grace by accepting the blood of the Lamb. And so, actually, we see so much here of God pointing towards Jesus, pointing towards the Lord's Supper. And actually, we need to understand this to understand what Jesus brought in in the Lord's Supper. And when we get to Mark 14, it's about 1,500 years later. And what we see is the disciples still celebrating this meal. This is something they'll have grown up with. And as with anything that's, you know, one and a half millennia old, there's quite a few traditions have been added. So by the time it gets to Jesus' time, there are the stewed fruit. There's a set order in which to do the meal. There's a set way in which they conducted the meal with hymns and psalm readings and silences and almost a script to it and how it was done. And what we see, actually, in the Lord's Supper is Jesus changing things. Jesus changed the tradition. He did what the disciples didn't expect. And so, hopefully, looking a little bit at that, we'll understand the impact it had on them. And that's when we get to the third meal. The third meal is the meal of the Savior. This is the Lord's Supper. And this is Jesus changing the Passover, fulfilling the Passover. And we'll see in Mark 14, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, this is Jesus changing things. This is exciting. This is good. And we'll understand, actually, how he changed things. So what should have happened at the Passover with the traditions at this point is the host of the Passover, who in this case is Jesus, would have taken the bread and he would have broken it and distributed it in silence. Jesus didn't do that. He changed it. He shocked the disciples 
What he did is he broke the bread and he handed it out and he said, this is my body. All of a sudden, the Passover's changed. The Passover, that bread is no longer about affliction, no longer about haste. That bread is now about Jesus and his body. It's no longer a Passover. It's the first Lord's Supper. It's Jesus bringing in this new meal for his people. So that would have been the first shock. All of a sudden, the bread isn't what we thought it was. And then the lamb would have come out and they would have eaten the lamb. And then the host was meant to proclaim a blessing over the wine. And what the host would have said was, this is the blood of the covenant. And then he would have passed it round. What Jesus did is he, yeah, again, he changed it. He stood up and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. Again, shocking the disciples, Jesus changed it. Jesus made the wine about him. He's put himself at the center, which is good. (laughs) This is what the church then took on. This is the Lord's Supper because the Passover has been fulfilled. And the, the Lord's Supper has the bread and the wine. And if you notice, there are a couple of things missing from the Passover. Jesus hasn't just taken the Passover and said, keep doing this. It's nice. We like roast lamb. Actually, he's changed it and there are things missing. And it's significant, the changes between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And so, just a quick look at the differences. Firstly, the lamb is missing. The lamb is no longer part of the meal. It's no longer part of the Lord's Supper. And that's because we see that Jesus is in fact the perfect Passover lamb. Where we see in Egypt how it was the blood of the lamb that saved the Israelites, that delivered them to freedom. Actually, Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. You see, the Israelites... They were delivered from their slavery. They were delivered from Egypt, but they were still slaves to their sin. What we see in the first meal, in the meal of the serpent, is humanity enslaved to sin. And the lamb, the blood of the lamb didn't deal with it, but the blood of Jesus does. And so we have no more need for a lamb. That is why we don't have, you know, poorly, some might argue, but that's why we don't have roast lamb when we have communion together. It's because Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb for us. All of that symbolized, that lamb is fulfilled in him. In, um, in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Those New Testament writers, not long after Jesus, they understood what Jesus had done, that he had fulfilled all that the Passover was pointing towards. And the second thing that was missing in the Lord's Supper is the bitter herbs. And now the bitter herbs reminded the people of what slavery was like. But as we've just said, they were still slaves to their sin. And they continued to rebel against God. And if you've read the Old Testament, that's pretty much what it is. It's the people rebelling against God and God still loving them. And I think for us, 
we don't need the bitter herbs because I don't think we need reminded of slavery. We don't need reminded of slavery to sin because we probably struggle every day with sin. Either sin in ourselves or sin of people near us or sin in the world. We see sin quite a lot. We understand what it is to be slaves to sin, to be trapped to it. Actually, I think more often than not, we need reminded we're free. We need reminded that we're liberated, that we've been delivered, we have a deliverer. That Jesus has done it all. And as ever, I love a bit of practical application. And so we're going to look at actually what God gives to us in the Lord's Supper, in in the communion. What effect can it has have on us? How does it apply to our lives? How can it help us? First thing I think it helps us is it brings us back to basics. It brings us back to the center of all we believe. I am, if you don't know me, I'm a scientist. I work in a laboratory. I'm quite nerdy. Um, and every day I come into work and I turn on a set of scales. And there are a set of scales for measuring really, really small amounts. And what I do is I come in, turn it on, set it to zero. Now, throughout the day, what happens is these scales drift, so they no longer read zero. They're no longer accurate. They've kind of drifted away. And if you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, I have the world's most boring video clip. <laughs> there we go. So these are my scales, no longer on zero. They are on minus 0. 0.000. Not seven. And there I am, setting it to zero. Yay, there we go. <laughs> there is an application. Um, the, this setting back to zero, I think, is a bit like us. Sometimes we can go away from here, having been centered on Jesus, looking to him. But then during the week, we go out, we get distracted. Work, school, friends, other things, worries in life. They can distract us. They can draw us away from our first love. They can pull us away from centering God. And when we take the Lord's Supper, when we think of Jesus' body and his blood, I think it brings us back to what we're about. It centers us. It sets us back to zero point. If we drift, the Lord's Supper brings us back. God understands what we are like. This is the great thing. He doesn't expect too much of us. God knows what we're like. In his grace, he gives us the Lord's Supper because he knows we can drift. He knows we can go off. And he, he brings a way of us just coming back to Jesus and all that he has done for us. The second thing is what Jesus has bought for us. I think when we take the Lord's Supper... We should be infused because we shouldn't get stuck on the cross because Jesus didn't. When we think of the body and the blood, don't stop there. Actually, Jesus died, but he rose again. And by rising again, Jesus bought so much for us. All that was broken in the first meal, the meal of the serpent, is restored in Jesus. That relationship with the Father... It's restored in Jesus. Sin is defeated because of what Jesus did. 
Satan is destroyed because of what Jesus did. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, let our faith rise because we are coming to a God who has done so much for us. We are coming to a God who has delivered us. We see in the Passover, we see God setting his people free from slavery. And that was physical. He moved them from Egypt and he moved them to the promised land. Now for us, Jesus has done the same. He has set us free from our ultimate slavery, from slavery to sin. And what he's brought in that is such freedom. We've seen it already this morning. We have a God who heals. He's brought that for us. Let our faith build. When we think of all that Jesus has done, when we think of all that he has secured for us, our faith should rise. And so when we take the Lord's communion in, well, six weeks' time now, uh, (laughs) at the next family night, actually, our faith should rise because we're not stuck on the cross. Actually, Jesus rose again. He gave us so much. God has given us so much. Let's be expectant to see healings. Let's be expectant to see strongholds broken down. Let's be expectant to see the broken bound up. To see those who are in prison, those who are enslaved, liberated. Even today. Ginny has been talking about, actually, liberation. It's because of all that Jesus has done. It's because of his blood covering us. It is all about him. And not only that, but we can't help but worship. When we think about all that God has done for us, even this morning, we've been seeing God setting people free. We've been seeing God breaking strongholds. We've seen God healing people. What is our response? We worship. We can't help but pour our worship to him. And we see in in verse 26 of of Mark 14, we see the disciples worshipping. They sing a hymn and then they go out. It's, it's just, it's inevitable. When we think of all that Jesus has done, we will worship. And now the third application, the third practical thing of the Lord's Supper is that we are part of a people. We eat from the same loaf when we drink from the same cup and it's symbolic. It's God reminding us that we together are his church. We are his prize. We have been purchased by him. We are saying that the most central thing in our life is is Jesus. And that's amazing that a bunch of relative strangers could come together and say, we both share the same thing. We both have that first love that is Jesus Christ. We are a people united because of all that he has done. Because he has bought us. He has saved us. He has ransomed us and delivered us. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 17, says this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share one loaf. We together at the church and we are his people united by him and this leads amazingly to the final meal we've had the meal of the serpent we've had the sacrifice we have the savior and we have the celebration 
There we go. Uh, <laughs> in verse 25 of Mark 14, Jesus says this. He says, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. At that first Lord's Supper, at that first communion, Jesus is looking forward. He's looking forward to the kingdom of God, that new time. And you know what? So should we. So in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, it says this. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This is what Jesus bought on that cross. This is what we see at the end. A beautiful, purified bride at a wedding feast, and that's us. This is what we should look forward to. Just as Jesus looked forward so should we. We should have our eyes set on eternity because life isn't always great. But God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. He knows where he is leading us. Nothing happens without him knowing it. We will struggle. And that's why God gives us the Lord's Supper. Because he knows that sometimes we can lose our focus. But Taking the Lord's Supper, it brings us right back. It allows us to look forward to all that Jesus has done, all that he has secured, and all that we will be a part of. As a people together, we are going to celebrate. We are going to worship in eternity. And that will be great. So in conclusion, when we think of the Lord's Supper and all that Jesus brought in here, Let's remember, let's remember him. Let's remember all that he did. Let's remember all that he bought for us. Let us come back to our first love. Let us be expectant. Let our faith build. Because when we think of what Jesus died for, what we think of what he secured for us, these things are true. We've seen it today. We've seen people healed. We've seen, we've seen people restored. This is what this is what we expect. This is what our faith should build to. Actually, when we as the church meet together to celebrate him, this is what we should see. This is what God is about. And it should inevitably lead to worship. We are a worshipping people because we have a great God. Because Jesus has done so much and because we love him. And finally, we are to look forward. We are to look to that day when we will be with him, we will see him first to face to face, where there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain, but we will love him and we will worship him and we will see him. Let's pray. Let us pray. Thank you, Father God, that you had an outstanding plan, a plan that spans the whole of history, a plan, God, 
to see sinners redeemed, to see people restored, that Jesus, you would come and you gave yourself. I thank you, God, that you are active today. You are real today, Lord God, that you have bore yourself a people, but that you meet with us. God, I thank you for all that you've done. I thank you actually for what you've been doing today, Lord God, there. Where I didn't need to preach half of this because, because you've already done it, God. You've already set people free. You've already been at work. God, we pray, may it continue, Lord God. Be amongst us, Holy Spirit, even now. Let us look to our first love. You, Jesus Christ, the man who died for us. God who came and did the impossible by dying for our sins. We love you, Lord God. And we want to worship you. Because there is no more appropriate response, God, than bowing before you, who has done so much, God, that we could not do. You have saved us, and we love you, Lord God. Amen.